This podcast channel is about you, successful international entrepreneurs, successful expats, successful investors, sponsored by HCJ Contacts. All right, we're live. Uh, thank you for joining us this evening. And today we're going to talk to you as entrepreneurs, as business owners, about moving your technology company from Singapore to the U.S. So taking your tech company to the United States. Thank you for those joining us on Zoom, as well as on other platforms like Facebook and LinkedIn and stuff like that. Thank you for those who submitted your questions in advance so we can not give advice, but we can have them as a point for discussion. Remember, we may be tax consultants here at HCJ.tax, but we're not yet your tax consultants, which means that you need to get advice, actionable advice from someone who knows your situation inside out. So, oops. Okay, sorry, I'm just changing around my view screen here in gallery. Uh, yeah. So, oops, it's not allowing me. Uh, let me put the spotlight on myself, spotlight for everyone. Okay, great. So you need to get uh, advice from someone whom you properly retained and who understands your situation inside out and is duly qualified to give that advice. So with that in mind, I will start with question number one. Uh, hi, my name is, uh, I'm gonna not call your name. And my business partner and I have an online business selling a service to a global marketplace. Can a U.S. entity help me save taxes? Uh, for those who join, please keep, uh, I'm going to make sure you guys stay on mute. Please remain on mute. Right. Okay. Thank you. Can a U.S. entity help you save on taxes? It really depends. It depends on uh, which jurisdiction you're in. If it is, as is the case, you are in Singapore. Singapore is not exactly a high tax jurisdiction. It is a relatively low tax jurisdiction in that the, the headline corporate tax rates are 17%, which compares favorably with a C-Corp in the US, which for which the headline tax rate will be 21%. And it should be increasing uh, perhaps by the end of this year, early next year. But for now it is 21%. So, I'm not sure how just forming a company in the, in the U.S. is going to make a difference in terms of your tax burden. If it is that you do form an LLC, or even if you do form a C-Corp, then, then the question remains, do you have what we call substance in the U.S.? Do you have boots on the ground in the U.S.? Or is it that you just formed a shell company? You just went on one of the many websites that do it uh, really quickly and really efficiently and, you know, whatever. And that's it. So you just have a company in the U.S. Because when you look at the Inland Revenue Authority of Singapore, IRAS, 
the with the Income Tax Act in Singapore, the two tests that they look at would be one management and two control. So even though your company may be incorporated in another jurisdiction, if management and control is deemed to be exercised from Singapore, one can argue that you have a Singapore company and therefore it should be taxable by IRS in Singapore, even though the clients who are abroad or the, the product is, or the service in your case, it's a service is being rendered outside of the US, uh, outside of Singapore, it still would be taxable in Singapore because the creation of, of the service or management and control has been exercised from Singapore. So to answer your question, can it save on taxes? I'm not quite sure it would. But of course, I don't have all the facts. So that's just my opinion. Next question. So from the same person, so that we did part A, so part B. A consultant recommended a C-Corp over an LLC. What are my thoughts? Okay, well, you know, um, there are a number of entity types available when you want to form an entity in the United States. For those who are not U.S. persons, so they don't have a U.S. passport, they don't have a green card, or they don't trigger substantial presence in the U.S., they tend to be limited. There are, I mean, there's a lot, but just for the simply keeping it simple, you tend to be limited to either C-Corp or an LLC. What does that mean? You know, like, what's the difference, right? So a C-Corp is readily identifiable because that will be equivalent to roughly equivalent to Singapore Private Limited. So it is a, a separate legal entity with rights and responsibilities of its own. It has its own tax ID, whatever. The other option would be a limited liability company. So a limited liability company is a creature of the state. So essentially, whether you're gonna form a C-Corp and LLC, the process is the same. You, you tend to go to, you need to choose what state you're gonna incorporate. And, and that would be not just, I know everyone rushes for Delaware because of the brand name recognition, presumably, but I would recommend that some more thought be given, especially if you're gonna do business in the US and if you're gonna have any US nexus, chances are you may wanna consider whether you're gonna form that initial entity in the state in which you would trigger some sort of connection. But anyway, let's just, let's just talk generally. So an LLC, it's called a limited liability company, but you can make an election for it to be treated like a C-Corp. If you don't make that election, the default is that it's a pass-through. So it's like a hybrid entity. So the equivalent in Singapore, if I had to, I'd say it's like, if it's a single member LLC, so there's just like one person who owns it, it'll be like a sole proprietorship. If more than one person own it, it'll be treated like the Singapore equivalent of a limited liability partnership or an LLP. So that's what an LLC is. But so what's the difference? One is passed through. So the income that the LLC earned is not taxable in the hands of the LLC. So the difference is tax. So it's actually taxable in the hands of the members of the LLC, whether it's you guys as individuals, or if you may hold your membership in that LLC via a, a Singapore entity, for example, or BVI or some, so, some other structure. So it'll be taxable in the hands of whoever's behind the LLC, not the LLC, whereas a C-Corp 
it's taxable in the hands of the sequel. Uh, it does get, the, does get a, more, a bit more involved in it, but that tends to be the key difference. The C-Corp is viewed as a more formal structure. And if it is, especially if you want to bring in third-party investors, they tend to prefer C-Corp. When I say formal, I mean that the compliance burden is slightly higher and that, you know, you would... I mean, either way, you'd want to make sure that everything, you know, you, you do meetings and meetings are minuted, you have a separate bank account, you know, all, all the normal, uh, let's say, financial hygiene that you want to exercise in running an entity would apply in either of them. But the bar is slightly higher when it comes to C-Corp. In addition to it, the C-Corp is subject to double tax of the income. What, what do I mean by that? So... When the company earns a profit, it files its own return, the C-Corp. It files its own return, pays corporate tax at 21%. And then the dividends can be extracted by the shareholders. And when the shareholders receive those returns, it is often subject to taxes as well. So the income is being taxed twice, one in the hands of the company. And then when dividends are extracted, uh, it's going to be taxed again in the hands of the shareholders. Whereas when it's an LLC, the LLC doesn't pay tax, only the members behind it. So I hope that helps. But I would normally say that in order to make a recommendation, we would need to understand the business model inside out. So that's where uh, having a better idea of, of what your aims, objectives, uh, the nature of the structure, the businesses, the business, etc. Basically, see a pitch deck or business plan that will help us advise accordingly. So those are my thoughts on C-Corp versus LLC. Part C. So this person had like four parts, right? So A, B, C, and D. C, what are tax implications or tax obligations? Well, it depends, right? So remember, we're saying that if you have no nexus in the US, everything is going to be taxable by IRS and Singapore, right? But uh, let's put that to one side. Let's say that, you know, you do have, you do trigger some sort of presence in the US. I think everyone is well familiar with the direct taxes. So you're familiar with corporate taxes. So if it's a C-Corp, needs to file its own return. If it is that you guys hold it in your own names and through an LLC and it's taxable in your hands as an LLC, you don't file a corporate return, you file a non-resident return. So a 1040 NR for non-resident, as well as a 5472 to let the IRS know about the LLC. If it were a C-Corp, it will be an 1120. So if, or if your LLC was not held in your own names, but through a Singapore or some sort of corporate structure, it might be an 1120F. So it, it, really, it really depends on the paperwork, but essentially a corporate return is due or uh, an entity return, sorry, because it could be an individual, an entity return is due to declare direct taxes. But what is not often discussed is indirect taxes. I think it was back in 2017, there was a, a landmark court ruling and I think it was June 2017 in the US uh, called the Wayfair case, W-A-Y-F-A-I-R, you can Google it. So essentially what it did is that it shifted the burden or the, 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 the nexus requirements for indirect taxes. So what in Singapore is called GST, 
goods and service taxes. In the US, oh, in Europe, it'll be VAT. In the US, it's sales and use taxes. Now, typically, historically, sales and use taxes used to be triggered by physical presence. But after 2017, we've seen a transition towards economic activity. So even though you're providing a service, I would still recommend that you engage a, a team of professionals, not necessarily us, we can do it, but whoever you feel comfortable with, and you engage a team to do what we call a nexus study, which is understand your business model inside out and try to identify whether you have any sales and use tax requirements. So uh, reporting or liabilities as a result of your, your business activity. So, so that's the, those are the, the points that you need to consider in terms of your tax responsibilities from both the US and the Singapore perspective. And D, how can you reduce your taxes? That's what everybody asks, right? Uh, that is a great question. So we need a benchmark. So once we, because we've made a number of assumptions of I don't know your situation inside out. So once we understand what the as is position is, uh, so whether it is you guys are holding the shares in your own names and you're using a multi, uh, a multi-member LLC in a given jurisdiction, and therefore the, these are the task consequences. Then we have a benchmark, and then we can say, well, okay, given the structure, these are the liabilities that you now face, and then we can make recommendations to reduce it. But until we know the situation, we know what the as-is position is, it'd be hard to make recommendations as to as to how we can reduce that task burden. So hope that helped. So that was pretty involved. Thank, thanks, thanks for submitting that question. I, I appreciate it. Moving on. Question two. Hello team. Hi. Uh, hope you're doing well. We are. Thank you very much. I've recently registered name given LLC in Wyoming via uh, a, a certain service provider online who whose name I, I won't uh, mention, but he's given it, she or she has given it. So it seems to be one of those service providers that just, you just go to them and they're like an LLC mill. They don't need to know too much about you. They just, oh, you want an LLC? This is the price. And they just churn them out, uh, you know, dozens per day or, or whatever the case may be. But as we mentioned before, the choice of the entity as well as the state in which it's registered, because you can register in any one of the 50 states, right? Uh, that typically is given a bit more thought and consideration. But anyway, we are a company with operations in an Asian country, I won't name it. I've got a couple of questions and would appreciate it if you can help. We will surely give you some points for reflection, not answers, but points for consideration. So, and you go into A, B, and C as well. So, okay, A, what are the annual reports due? So this is an interesting question, right? So this person, as uh, I can tell from the way you phrased it, that you've done you some research, which is good. This is a good thing. So uh, you are clearly aware that there are tax forms as mentioned earlier to the in response to the previous question, but they're also annual reports. So uh, many secretaries of state, so depending what state you have opened, you created your LLC in, 
there may be a tax return due if there are, uh, you know, if there are taxable events, whether direct or indirect taxes, tax forms are due. But there are also annual reports due, which more or less identify, you're required to identify, you know, who are the members, you know, who's the manager, and whether it's still in good standing. And then you pay some usually a small amount in Delaware it's like $300 in California it can be kind of, it could be higher franchise tax fee I think it might be as high as $800 uh, it varies it varies by state but you do have to file often enough in most states a sort of annual report that lets them know that you're still in business more or less and you're still in good standing that this is separate from taxes. So that distinction needs to be made. So good point. Part B, what tax forms need to be filed? Well, it really depends, as I mentioned to the previous uh, person that asked a question, it depends on the nature of your structure. So you mentioned that you had an LLC, so we can ignore the 1120s that would be due if you had a corporation or if you elected to have a corporation. So you have an LLC, if it's a, a single a, month, uh, a single, mem uh, single member LLC, it'll be uh, a 1040 NR and a 5472. But you know, if it, and if it is that you have activity in the US, you may need to do a 1065. If it is that your entity is not owned by you guys in your names, it may be owned by another entity. So an entity that holds your interest in the LLC, then it may be an 1120 and 1120F. So it, it really depends. It really depends on the forms. So the first thing we would need or whoever you, you're working with to, to get your taxes right, we'd need to understand the business model and we need to understand your corporate structure. And then we can make recommendations. Of course, the same principles as previously discussed would apply. We tend to pay attention to areas where people don't, they, they tend to miss the trick. And one of the things that people fall down on to no consequence of their own, it's just something that's overlooked is indirect taxes. So we probably need to, uh, we'll encourage you as the responsible person, right? To engage in some sort of nexus audit to, just to see whether you have sales and use tax obligations given your business model. So hope that helps. So that's part B. Part C. I read that, you know, as, as I said, I can tell that you're doing a lot of reading, which is good. You know, there's these important financial decisions. So this is always a good sign. I read that profits from LLC, from the LLC are passed through. That's correct. That'll be taxed on, in my home country as personal income tax. Is that the best option for non-resident alien LLCs? Also, will the U.S. government deduct any TDS? And TDS is defined by this questionnaire as tax deducted at source when I transfer the money to my Asian bank account. Okay, um, you're absolutely correct. An LLC is a pass-through. So as mentioned before, the equivalent would be if you are a single member LLC, so your LLC is owned by one person, it'd be the equivalent of like sole proprietorship. If your LLC is owned by more than one person, then it's a multi-member LLC. So it's more than one member 
in, in the LLC. So it's considered like, a, it'll be treated like a partnership, right? So it's, ta but it's, it's a partnership that's always taxable in the hands of the person behind the LLC, not the LLC itself. Uh, when it comes to direct taxes, when it comes to indirect taxes, the LLC may be responsible on uh, the responsible person. You tend to have to identify a responsible person within the LLC who has responsibility for making sure the LLC is compliant with the indirect taxes, which we, we've touched on. So that's that point. Uh, if you're a non-resident alien and you are responsible for management and control, the question is, well, where are you managing and controlling the LLC? And in that jurisdiction, in direct taxes will probably be triggered to correct. So if you're in Singapore, then you probably need to let the Inland Revenue Authority of Singapore know that you are running a foreign company from within Singapore and declare and pay taxes accordingly. So that's it for number two. Moving to number three, and for those of you who just joined, feel free to also type your questions below and I will have a look at them in the order in which you type them and we can use it as a point for discussion. Again, these, uh, this is not intended to be advice. What we're doing is identifying what I think are the key points that you wanna take up with your preferred advisor. And as always, uh, it's always great to get professional advice. So, yeah. Question three. I want to set up a U.S. LLC as a subsidiary of my Singapore Private Limited. Okay, that's fine. Should the LLC, when first incorporated, have my Singapore entity as a member? If so, how does this work in terms of banking in the U.S.? That's a great question, right? Um, like most jurisdictions, so, well, first of all, if it is that the LLC is going to be a subsidiary of the Singapore Private Limited, is going to be a, a subsidiary of the Singapore Private Limited, right? It is what it is. Uh, as this person is probably aware, you know, banking is becoming progressively more challenging regardless of which jurisdiction you're operating in. So no matter where you are in the world, banking remains a challenge. And it's not necessarily a bad thing is that there are people that have abused banking privileges and they did things that were not ethical or perhaps illegal. As a result, banks have been held responsible and the compliance burden has been increased. So therefore the banks pass that increased compliance burden on to us as, as customers. They have, an they have uh, been what they call enhanced vetting. They have increased responsibility for understanding it's customers, so KYC. They need to know your customers. They need to know their customers. And so when you're going to onboard onto a bank, the, the onboarding process is pretty rigorous. So be prepared to sit and answer questions for an hour. I've seen it take two hours. So it's basically like a job interview. That bank officer needs to be like 100% clear as to who you are, the nature of your business, and the purpose for which you require an account. And they will ask as many questions as it takes to understand your business. And for people who have certain types of businesses, like let's say adult entertainment or anything related to crypto, or you know, some people who work in the in certain other consulting fields, let's leave it that way. 
you may find that some banks may be uh, less enthusiastic in, in your business. So their default position is that if they don't understand it, or if they don't like it, or if they have any reason to believe that it's, on the, it's in a gray area, the default position is no. We don't want, we don't need your business. Uh, so please check elsewhere. Uh, I, I know it comes across a bit arrogantly sometimes, but consider it this way. If you, can, if you think about it this way, it helps you help yourself. The bank is doing you a favor. I know, you, I mean, you're kind of like going to be typing away in the comments below, but that is essentially what it is. They don't, the way banks are structured, right? They don't, their position is that they don't need you. And uh, that's why it's, it's so much of a rigorous interview process. But anyway, so when you get to the US, so there are online banks, so there are challenger banks that you can do, you can, uh, contact online and see whether they'll do your banking. So like Revolut or Wise, which used to be TransferWise is now Wise. Some of my clients use Mercury. So you can take one of those non-traditional banks, but typically, you know, I'm neither for nor against them, don't get me wrong, but typically there's a limit to what can be done with them. And invariably, you would need a traditional bank to work in concert with that bank. So I, you know, could be wrong, but this is my perception. This is my understanding. So it's a good short-term solution, but in the long-term, you probably want a traditional bank, especially if you want to move away from like Stripe and PayPal in terms of uh, payment processing and you want to move to another payment processor with lower fees, they tend to mandate that you work with a traditional bank. So anyway, so if, if that, if you are going to work with a traditional bank, you'll need to be there in person and you'll need to go through the interview that we discussed. You need to bring all the paperwork from the company. It's best to contact the bank in advance. You don't waste time, right? What do they need to see? They tend to need to see like, uh, you know, the operating agreements, they need to see uh, resolutions, board resolutions that uh, authorize whoever it is to act on behalf of the entity and open and close accounts. You know, they need to, you know, they need to see lots of paperwork, best to contact the bank in advance. Uh, and, and so, you know what they require and everyone doesn't waste each other's time. So, right, so that's how it works in terms of banking. So then next question, and it's a natural follow-up, is how can I enter the U.S. to set up banking? Well, as you know, we live in unprecedented times. I can't say the word, otherwise we'll get blocked on certain platforms. But obviously we know that there's a health crisis going on. So right now the U.S., like many other jurisdictions, they've restricted non-essential travel. So if you, if you were like on a visa waiver, and you are like on an ESTA, you probably can't enter the US right now. Uh, if, you're on a, if you have a B1, B2, you probably can't enter the US right now, I believe. But if you have a business visa, if you have a residence or work permit, you may be entered to the, enter the US. So 
the U.S. visa system is relatively complex. I believe there are like 130 visa categories. So we work with uh, U.S. immigration attorneys. We're not immigration attorneys, but we do work with them. So if you want, you can email me and I will introduce you accordingly. Because if you're opening or if you already have a business in the U.S. and it's a going concern and you've been compliant to whatever, you may be able to apply for one of the L visas, L1, L2, maybe, or depending if you hold a Singaporean passport, uh, one of the E visas as well may be open to you. So there would be business related visas connected to your investment that you can use to attend to the US do your banking and see clients, et cetera. So just contact us separately and we will let you know, introduce you accordingly. Next question and the final question. I have an LLC in the US as I want to build up my real estate portfolio. Of course, the US is a, the destination of choice for investors and especially real estate investors. There's so many clients who are based in not just Singapore, but Southeast Asia and have invested in US real estate. So anyway, so I have an LLC and it's owned by Singapore Private Limited, just like the previous questioner, okay. Would getting an ITIN help with my credit rating? Okay, I see what I mean. We do get this question that some people want to use leverage. Some people want to, uh, some people go in all cash. Some people use leverage, so they, they use debt as well, but they source that debt from Singapore, from Singapore financial institutions to go in with them on US real estate or some would like to get loans from U.S. banks. So the problem that you're going to have is that, well, if it is that you have an LLC, which clearly you do because you said you do, when someone does a credit check on the LLC, if there's no score, if you, you know, if it's brand new or something, then obviously either would fail or just won't show up, right? Uh, you won't get, uh, access to the credit that you need. Now, when you speak about what getting an ITIN help, an ITIN is an individual tax identification number. Kind of like in Singapore, if you are working, living in Singapore, and you're Singaporean, you have an IC. So the IC uh, is what we call in the US a social security number. So this is something that's given to people who are citizens, residents, lawful permanent residents, like green card holders and stuff like that. If it is that you are a non-resident investor in, in Singapore, you might get a FIN number, a foreign identification number, a foreigner identification number, I think it means. So the equivalent of that is the ITIN, which you've asked for. So what, you, what is crystal clear is that the ITIN applies to individuals, not companies a company would have an EIN or an employer identification number. So that's probably what you would be looking for to make sure that your LLC has an EIN. Now, when an LLC is brand new, obviously it won't have any scoring, but as you operate the bank account, the performance of the bank account would lead to you getting a score. So you operate your bank account well, you know, you speak to your banker about access to credit, whether it be an overdraft or some sort of lending facility. And you might start off small and then you make sure you pay that back and you service it as agreed, that, that helps. So 
it's really a function of your relationship with your bank, with your traditional bank, as opposed to the non-traditional bank. So it's a function of your relationship with your, with your traditional bank. So you're looking for an EIN, not an ITIN, an EIN for your LLC. And you'd want to focus on building up a great history with your LLC because your LLC, as you pointed out, is owned by a Singapore private limited. So EIN, not ITIN, hope that helps. Now what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take a quick look on some of the other platforms to see if there are any other questions. Oops. Delay, delay, delay. Okay, you're moving very slowly. Okay, nothing here, nothing here, nothing here. Okay, seems like that's it. Thank you very much for those who ask questions. If you want to follow up, please uh, drop us a line at help at hda.tax. That's help at hda.tax. We have regular live stream Q&As like this one. So the next one is towards the end of August with immigration attorney Mike Dye who also has an office in Singapore. He has an office in Singapore, KL, Jakarta, uh, as well as Dubai. So he's very much, he has a great Asian presence. So he's quite familiar with the needs of the Asian investor, business owner who, who wants to make that step towards the US. So please join us for that one or any of the other live streams that we have throughout the, towards the end of the year. I think we have 16 more as we progress towards the end of the year. Thank you very much. It's your Tats. See you next time. Bye-bye now. Here are four ways we can help you. Number one, sign up for free webinars on US Expat Texas and International Entrepreneur Texas at www.htj.tex. Number two, stream premium educational videos at www.htj.tex. Number three, contact us for tax optimization consult offer Zoom. Number four, high net worth. We can quote for doing your U.S. international taxes returns. Our books and upcoming events are available at htj.tax. Please subscribe, like, share, and comment below. Email us at help at htj.tax to engage us to advise on international tax or business matters.